If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to Empire with me, Anita Arnon. And me, William Durrumpel. And we're very excited about today because we are joined by Orlando Figes. And we're mostly excited because we, we got his name right. I have had so <laughs> many variations on that theme. Elgar would be entirely jealous of it. And my favourite Orlando, apart from you know being the greatest historian of Russia writing today, author of Crimea, the definitive book of the Crimean War, which is what we're talking about today, you have... The name that is most twistable. I thought it was mine, but it's yours. Uh, my favourite version was Figgies, which made me yeah. feel like it was Christmas. Uh, I've had Figgus. Figgy pudding. I've yeah. been called all sorts of names, but yeah, Figgies will do. Explain, explain yourself. Where does Figgies come from? And well done, William, for always saying it right. Well, we're not sure. I mean, um, as far as one can tell on Ancestry.com, we, we're a bunch of Londoners ever since records began. But uh, I suspect we're either Huguenot immigrants, or I like to think Catalans, because the one place they know how to pronounce my name is in Barcelona. So we must have been from that part of the world somewhere. Not a bad spot to be recognised. No, no, I'm, I'm happy. And no sellers of figgy pudding in your ancestry? for No, 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 all basic labourers from London, South London. <laughs> we are, we are, we are toiling with Vigis today. What we're doing is we're talking about the Crimean War, which throws up so many names you're going to be familiar with. I mean, names like Florence Nightingale immediately comes to mind, Tennyson, Tolstoy. But what I wanted to start with, if it's all right with you, Orlando, is to talk about why this is so resonant, what happened then to what's happening now. And if I can sort of take you to a really pivotal moment, which was just this year, which was the Ukrainians bombing the Kirsch Bridge, which is the connection between Russia and Crimea. Now, that seemed to be just an absolutely seismic moment in this confrontation that's going on. Explain why it mattered so much to Putin that that bridge was destroyed. 
Well, it was a symbol of all the investments that the Putin regime had put into Crimea since the Russians had annexed it back in 2014. And it's absolutely crucial to the logistical supply of Russian forces in Crimea, especially since, you know, the great fear of Putin is the idea of NATO-backed Ukrainian forces marching into the peninsula. So the supply of the Crimea, which is absolutely crucial also to the history of the, of the first Crimean War, if we can call the subject of my book that, is central. And you talk about the residents. Actually, I mean, when I started this book, I mean, we're talking about a book I wrote 15 years ago. So my record might not be absolute, but I do remember that Anthony Beaver, for one, told me, what on earth are you doing writing a book about the Crimean War? No one will want to read it. <laughs> right. Totally relevant today. <laughs> and, and, then, and then four years after publication with the Russian annexation of Crimea, you know, I saw on Twitter someone saying, Crimea trending for the first time since 1854. And I got myself absolutely barraged by journalists wanting to know everything from where is the Crimea to why is it important and so on. And since then, looking back on the book, I, you know, I am struck by absolutely how completely relevant that war is to the, the current war between Russia and Ukraine. And, you know, it's sort of almost as if the, the, the conflict of the mid-1850s had sort of set some sort of pattern had been set in deep history somewhere that, that is echoed in the First World War to some extent, but obviously more importantly now. Mm. Um, I mean, we should we should sort of give a little thumbnail sketch of, of what Crimea is, because for many people, it is a, a headline in a newspaper or a strapline on a news broadcast. So people may know that it's you know a great port and therefore of great strategic importance. That's the way it's covered. But also, I mean, until recently, it was quite a jolly holiday destination, wasn't it? For rich Russians to go, it was their Riviera in many ways. Not just rich Russians, but I mean, all Russians uh, saw the Crimea as their favourite holiday spot, a bit like the Costa Brava, I suppose, for the, for, for the English. And there were all sorts of sanatoria there, all sorts of pioneer camps that children went to. And it had a long, crucial part in the formation of Russia's national identity, because it was the place where back in 988, in the first millennium, the Grand Prince Vladimir, or Volodymyr, as the Ukrainians call him, had converted on behalf of the Rus, his people, to Christianity. And the church where uh, that spot was marked in Khersonesis, just outside Sevastopol, the Russian naval base, was in fact where the, the French encamped and in the process destroyed the church, causing great consternation and outrage in Russia. And a subsequent wave of atrocities because Indeed. of it, wasn't it? Yeah. Indeed. And that, and that was something I wanted to bring out in this book, that it really was, you know, religion was really crucial to this war, certainly for the Russians, and in a way that has been lost from the historiography of, of the 19th century, where we tended to think in terms of geopolitics and secular conflicts and battles for empire and so on. And in fact, religion and the, and the sensibilities invested in the Crimea, a spot not just of Vladimir's conversion, but of church building, monastery building, and Russian Orthodox priests from the early 19th century backing archaeological excavations to, to sort of claim Crimea as the sort of ur land of Russian Christianity. All of that played into the war. It's very interesting, Orlando. I've been working on a very similar period of history, the, 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 the Great Uprising 1857, which in a sense is the next big imperial confrontation. And the same thing there, that you have 20th century historians looking for every explanation for that. 
other than religious, looking yeah. for economic, political, empire, the whole thing, and ignoring what is very clear on the ground when you look at the primary sources that people are really upset about religion. And we, coming from the 21st century, you know, we recently had the anniversary of 9-11 in early September. And for our generation, it makes sense that people will fight about religion. We know that this is something that will stir people up. Yeah, and if we look at the origins of the war in terms of its, you know, main protagonist, Nicholas I, Tsar of Russia, I mean, for sure, religion was at the heart of his motivations, his desire to bully the Turks, to favour the Orthodox in the Holy Lands dispute, his insistence that he was fighting a holy war against the West for the defence of the Orthodox of the Ottoman Empire, persecuted by the Turks in his in his vision, his idea in influenced by so many of the pan-Slav ideologists of the 1830s and 40s that Russia was bigger than just the territory it occupied. It was like a new Israel. It was a holy land which stretched from, from Muscovy right through Constantinople or Tsargrad, as they call it, the origin of Russia's Christianity to Jerusalem itself, where they claimed the Turks had given them privileges to defend the Orthodox. So it was definitely for Nicholas a, a religious war. I've just come back from the island of Patmos and in the monastery there in the monastery museum very very clearly you've got this whole line of gifts from russian emperors to the orthodox monastery starting with peter the great through catherine the great and her admiral orlov all these gifts are displayed and you get a very clear impression there that that, that the russians are not just in a very general and over you know overarching sense but in a very real connected sense interacting with orthodox all over the the middle east and the aegean Absolutely. I mean, the Russian pilgrims to Jerusalem dominated that sort of journey. They were more Russian pilgrims than, than all the rest of the Christian communities put together in Jerusalem. They built their own hostel there. And that uh, was the, the immediate cause of, of the war in the sense that it created a conflict with the French who saw that they had their own mission there. But yeah, this is really one of the first and most obvious parallels with the war today, I guess, that, that Nicholas I saw Russia as greater than the terror territory of Russia and his duty as the last defender of orthodoxy to defend his orthodox uh, brethren throughout the Ottoman Empire, so the Greeks, the Serbs, the Bulgarians, the Moldavians, the Wallachians, and moreover, to assert Russia's rights of religious protection over the Holy Lands themselves. And he, you know, uh, made a direct connection between Jerusalem and Moscow by building or, or on the site of the New Jerusalem Monastery just outside Moscow, um, a, a church to uh, replicate the Holy Sepulchral Church um, in Jerusalem. So this was the idea that, that motivated the, the, the war party behind Nicholas, that, that Russia was a, a sort of civilization defined by its international orthodox uh, role, which is exactly the same as Putin, mm. it, believing that it's his righteous mission to defend so-called Russian speakers outside the borders of the Russian Federation, that Russia is something bigger than just the geopolitical entity, the state, the territory it controls. It is an idea, it is a mission to save humanity. Right, okay. I mean, that, 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 is, that is the contemporary reading of what he says, but he dips very much into history. And, you know, I, I mean, I've used this quote before on, on the podcast. I think it's Twain, but someone will correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And this, this very much is that case. What I wanted to ask you is that this seems to be the conflict between two origin stories here, and he's dipping into the past to justify what he's going to do in the future. 
tell us about the origin stories that both sides are leaning on in this conflict. Yeah, well, in 2016, November the 4th, uh, Putin oversaw the unveiling of a monstrous kitsch monument to the Grand Prince Vladimir, who was this guy I mentioned who converted for the Rus to Christianity, entering Byzantium. And it was um, a statue that already existed, I mean, in the sense that the Ukrainians had their own statue, the Grand Prince Volodymyr, as they call him, in Kiev, which had been erected in 1853, when Ukraine was still part of the Russian Empire, obviously. But that statue had become a source of Ukrainian identity even before 1917, and certainly after 1991, it was an important sort of symbol of Ukrainian independence from Russia. When they unveiled that monument in Moscow, Putin said that Grand Prince Vladimir was the founder of the modern Russian state, in other words, drawing a direct line from Rus, Kievan Rus's conversion to Christianity and, and the building of a state and the modern Russian state. Uh, and, and the Patriarch Kirill reinforced that by saying that, you know, basically the Orthodox community established by the Grand Prince was the Orthodox community headed by Moscow. And in in Kiev, of course, that was that was a terrible insult because they saw the Grand Prince Volodymyr as the founder of the modern European, as they would call it, Ukrainian state. And Pyotr Poroshenko, the Ukrainian president at the time, tweeted immediately saying that the Russians were usurping their history, mm. that what this monument symbolized was Ukraine's birth as a modern nation, uh, slightly questionable back in the first millennium, and its entry into the European world by joining Byzantium and the Eastern Christian Church. So, in other words, they were saying, we don't want Russia to claim our history is theirs. We have our own history, which is precisely what Putin was doing, saying effectively. Right, and so and so that so that really does explain why the, the blowing up of a bridge that connects these two landmasses that connected yeah. Crimea and Russia is is an absolute physical manifestation of what Putin may feel is the humiliations and betrayals of the past, and what Ukraine would deemed to be is the, an expression of their independence of Russia. So it's like I, I found that bridge just fascinating and the kind of violence that it unleashed, and that, that explains it. Sorry, Willie, you wanted to say? Yes, Orlando, in your new book, The Story of Russia, which, which I've hugely enjoyed, you actually go as far as saying this is really a war about history, that there are two rival conceptions of history that lie at the heart of the, the current conflict. Well, it's the justification Putin has used to launch the war that as he argued in his terrible historical essay of July 2021 on the historical unity of Russians and Ukrainians, he argued that basically Ukraine has never been a, a state. It does not contain statehood within it as a principle. It has never been more than, than a region of Russia. Ukraina, he will point out, just means in Russian, the edge, the borderland, which is how Russia always saw it in its imperial discourse. It called Ukraine Little Russia. It refused to recognize Ukrainian language. Um, under the value of laws of the 1860s, it banned publications in the Ukrainian language. And for Putin, the only time that Ukraine ever had anything like a statehood was when Lenin created the U uh, Ukrainian Soviet Republic. New Russia. Yeah. Well, New Russia is a slightly different issue because when the um, <clears throat> New Russia refers to those provinces of what we now call southern Ukraine, presently occupied by the Russians, which had been conquered by Catherine the Great in the late 18th century, and, and they called them the province of, of New Russia. 
uh, before 1917. And after 1991, when Ukraine inherited those territories, along with the Crimea, which had been transferred by Khrushchev to the Ukrainian Republic in, in 1954, a new Russia movement emerged among Russian nationalists like Solzhenitsyn, like Sobchak, Putin's great sort of mentor as a young politician in Petersburg in the 1990s, who said, well, you know, these are historic Russian lands. Uh, Catherine took them, Pachomkin took them. They are part of Russia's uh, historical legacy, and we require them back. So that was always there from, from the early 1990s. The sense among Russian nationalists that, that too much had been gained by Ukraine at the expense of Russia. And that festered throughout the 1990s. But of course, once Putin comes to power and from about 2012, the beginning of his third presidency, picks up this idea of the restoration of a great Russia, that is fueled to this historically driven campaign to either neutralize and make dysfunctional Ukraine as a border state that could threaten Russia. Um, and certainly, if Ukraine could not be mastered in this way to take back those territories, which is exactly what has happened. Well, let's let's actually go back then. I mean, we, we're talking about the modern day, but uh, let, let's go back to the Crimean War that Putin is so leaning on in, in his current foreign policy. And it all is enmeshed with the decline of the Ottoman Empire. We've done an entire series on the Ottoman Empire. And if you haven't heard it, it's really good. Go back. But I mean, the, the, the Ottoman Empire is declining. Russia, in response, is, is, is seeing an opportunity to fill a vacuum. And is it true to say that they're kind of inspiring Slavic nations within what is now the, the crumbling edifice of, of the Ottoman Empire to, to rise up and throw them off? I mean, is, is that a correct assessment of what, what the breadcrumbs are that lead to the Crimean War? It's sort of corrected in a fairly simplified way, if I may say. Oh, thanks. Thanks very much. Nobody's uh, <laughs> ever said something as lovely, uh, <laughs> except Peter Frankopan. <laughs> I'm keeping quiet here. Yeah. <laughs> I'll give you B+. Plus I feel time. like your time will come, Willie. <laughs> Do, go well. well. Do go on, Orlando. <laughs> well, look, I think we have, to, we have to take it a little bit further back than that, because Russia had been fighting wars against, uh, against the Turks throughout the 18th century. And it was because of the instability of Russia's southern border. I mean, here geopolitics is important because effectively the whole line from the Danube, uh, Silistria through to the Caucasus was a, fault, a religious fault line between Christian Russia and, and the Muslim world. I have to say this is the thing that I thought was absolutely startling about your your reworking of the Crimean War in your new book. You don't get an A for sucking up, by the way. I'm sucking up! <laughs> But I he, genuinely, he no, I genuinely minus, yeah. Seriously. <laughs> I'm still working for the A plus here. I see you, Dalrymple. Yes, go on. So it's teacher's pet. <laughs> teacher's pet. The, the, the idea that it's this huge frontage isn't just the Crimea, it's the whole southern border of the Russians. It is. And of course, in the 18th century, Catherine the Great's policy was to push back the Turks to expel them from Europe, as they thought. And in her own mind, she had some vague idea. We don't know how 
practical or realistic it was to establish a new Greek empire, a new sort of Byzantine empire. She called her son Constantine. Mm. Indeed. Yeah. And that was part of her supposed plan to, to conquer Constantinople, uh, make it uh, the capital of a sort of mega Orthodox empire centered in Constantinople, but stretching from Moscow effectively to Jerusalem. And it was also tied with the geopolitics of the Black Sea, because effectively Russia needed to compete with Western powers. Peter the Great had begun that by importing Western technologies, and he defeated the Swedes to become a Baltic power in the early 18th century. But to compete with the West, Russia needed to move away from its traditional exports, which were timber, fur, wax, uh, honey, and stuff like that, to um, exporting their great product of, of the southern steppe wheat above all through the ports such as Odessa into the Western markets. And indeed, Odessa became an important part of international trade. I mean, it was the Durham wheat coming through uh, Odessa that uh, enabled pasta to develop in the 19th century. Brilliant. I love that. That's a, that's yeah. a good fact. This was, her, this was her sort of reorientation of Russia towards the South and the Black Sea. And you say they call it in Russia the, the Great Eastern War. It's not the Crimean War. It's the Great Eastern War. Well, that's because they saw it in geopolitical terms as, as, as broader than the question of expelling the Allied forces landing on the Crimea to punish Russia for its intervention in the, the principalities against Turkey. But we can come to that. It's a bit complicated. But for the moment, I think the important <laughs> thing to bear in mind is that, is that there are geopolitical and imperial, in terms of this neo-Greek empire they wanted to establish, supposedly, and religious motivations for, for Russia to push south annexing eventually the Crimean Peninsula in, in 1786. And the Crimean Peninsula had been under the control of the Khanate until that point. The Khanate of Crimea was the last of Genghis Khan's Khanates after the collapse of, of the Mongol Empire. And it caused a great deal of trouble for Russia because the Nogai tribes and other Tatar-speaking uh, tribes of the Crimean Peninsula and southern Ukraine, as we would call it today, had raided, had raided north periodically. So she wanted to establish Russian garrisons and make a presence there to eliminate any any Muslim or Tatar threat to, to, to Muscovy, as it essentially could still at that point be, be conceived. You've brought up sort of markets and, and ethnic composition, and both of those things are, are fascinating. So when people talk about Crimea then, what is the ethnic mix? Is it this kind of pseudo-religious, orthodox, uh, not pseudo-religious, but... They've been, or, they've been actually ethnically cleansing, haven't they, since the time of, of Catherine the Great? They have. Yeah, what is it? What does it look like? It's not really Russian at all. About 80% of the peninsula at the time of the Crimea was Tatar in population. 80? 80, yeah. Gosh. And there had been, as you say, Willie, there had been concerted efforts in the early 19th century to, to Russify and Christianize the peninsula. So Bakhchisarai, which was the old capital of the, of the Khanate, was sort of downgraded by the building of new roads and Simferopol, which was an important supply town to get provisions from south southern Russia into the Crimea, was upgraded. And Sevastopol, the, the naval base, was, was built in a sort of neoclassical style and, and became the sort of stronghold of, of Russian presence. But as you say, it was a long-term plan of the Russians to, to Christian and the Crimean War accelerated a process, I believe, or, that had already been taking place to encourage Tatar um, populations to, to evacuate and, and, and move back to the Ottoman Empire. 
what we ought to do. I mean, we're sort of, we keep referring back to the Crimean War as if everyone will know when, how, and why it started. So I think it's a, it's a good point now to describe the months leading up to the war itself and what sparked it. Well, we need to think of the Crimean War in two phases. Um, the first phase is Russia's attempt to uh, secure its advantages, which it believed to have been enshrined in a treaty um, signed back in the 18th century and, and reinforced in 1833 to protect the Orthodox within the Ottoman Empire. So that's the Balkan Slavs. But also, more importantly, for the immediate origins of the Crimean War, to preserve what Nicholas believed were the privileges of the Greeks or the Orthodox in the Holy Lands, particularly their control of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and, more importantly, perhaps even of uh, the, the, the Church of the Nativity, where the Latins, backed by the French, and the Greeks, backed by the Russians, have been fighting for some time over who should hold a key to get access to the supposed birthplace of Jesus Christ, where the Latins have laid a silver star, which is still there, and, and also who was to have the rights to, to, to repair the roof, which had fallen in, and under Ottoman law, who owned the roof, owned the house. So you can see that symbolically a fight over the church keys and the control of the roof was actually a fight over who should have precedence over control of the holy places at a time when there were, as we said, lots of pilgrims going to, to the holy lands and when this uh, was being used by all the powers as a sort of foothold into the Ottoman Empire, which, as we as we know, was increasingly weak and open to foreign influence. Let me take us then uh, to, to 1853. I mean, that, that is the year of the Crimean War. You have Nicholas I, who has arguably the largest land army in all Europe? I mean, how powerful, how strong is he and how do others in Europe regard him? Well, in 1853, when Nicholas essentially decides to mobilise his forces and send in his senior Admiral Menshikov to bully the Turks into giving the Russians what they want in the Holy Lands, and moreover to reinforce, which for the Western powers was an alarming a development. The treaty rights they thought they had gained in 1833 to close the Dardanelles to Western military shipping when required by the Russians. The Turks were encouraged by the British in particular to resist, and they had their own reasons for resisting Russian bullying. But the Russians had the advantage of being able to make a lightning strike towards Constantinople because they had troops already gathered, as they always had done, on the Danubian front. And it was only a few days marching to get to Constantinople. And they'd used that tactic before. They'd used it in 1829 when the Russians had come to the defense of the Greeks in their war for independence and had marched towards Constantinople to try and impose their will on, on the Turks, but also effectively to bring in the Western powers on the side of the Greeks. Weren't there stories that they were stuffing the Russian monasteries on Mount Athos with, with Russian troops? We go there today, they're like barracks, these huge monasteries on, in Mount Athos at Rusikon. 
Yes. And the idea was that they were they were using these as troop depots to launch against Constantinople. Indeed. And that connection between Mount Athos in, in northern Greece and, and the Russian Orthodox Church was terribly important because many pilgrims had been there. There was thought to be a spiritual connection with the Orthodox communities in Russia as a result of that link. In 1853, when Nicholas I sent his armies into, into the Danubian principalities, what we now call basically Romania, and the idea was that the threat of the seizure of Constantinople would force the Turks into giving into Russia's demands. The Turks, a little bit like the Ukrainians today, actually fought much better than the Russians assumed they would. The Turks have been modernizing their army, partly under French influence since the 1830s and 40s, and they were quite good at siege warfare. So they defended Silistria, which was the main town the Russians decided to attack quite well. And the Russians eventually had to give up trying to take Silistria on the way to Constantinople. We were all brought up on this idea of the sick man of Europe, the Ottoman as this decaying state. But I think historians today see it as oddly resilient, don't they, that, that this was something which was... It was actually stronger than it looked. Indeed. And they, they, they fought particularly well in the defence of Silistria. And partly they were helped by the fact that that area was badly provisioned. It was basically marshland, cholera, typhus infested. More Russian troops died from disease than they did from the fighting. And demoralisation soon set in. But once the Turks effectively repelled the Russians... You know, at that point, there needn't have been a Crimean War at all, because effectively the Russians were being sent back with the tail between their legs, not just by Turkish resistance, but by the fear of Austrian intervention. Now, here's another factor we have to bring in, because essentially Russia had counted on the support of Austria. Nicholas I had rescued Franz Joseph, the, the young emperor of Austria in 1849, by sending in 250,000 Russian troops to crush the Hungarian uprising. And he thought that the Austrians owed him one and would uh, and certainly support them. It turned out that the Austrians were more concerned about the effect that Russia's incursion into the Balkans might have on their own Balkan Serbs. Because Romania is immediately next door to Hungary. Exactly. Yeah. Th they feared that, that Russia's encouragement of Balkan uprisings against the Ottomans would spill over into Balkan Serb uprisings against the Austrians, which, of course, we know would happen much later in 1914. And indeed. Indeed, through the Balkan Wars before that. And so the Austrians adopted a stance of armed neutrality. But then when the Russians were actually on their march to Constantinople, they delivered an ultimatum to the Russians, get out or we will use the forces that they had mobilized on the borders. So at that point, you would have thought, well, the Western powers could sort of just send the Russians back and impose the peace plan they had already engineered through Austria's intervention, which is known as the Four Points. And effectively, what that would have done would be to say, well, let's go back to the uh, status quo antebellum, and uh, we will put the Ottoman Orthodox populations under some sort of international supervision. We will demilitarize the straits, in other words, reversing that treaty provision the Russians thought they had got to turn the Black Sea into a Russian lake in 1833, and that they would reaffirm and basically fudge the issue of what was to happen in the Holy Lands. They could have done that. At that point, there wouldn't have been a Crimean War. No mm -hmm. one had thought of landing Allied forces in the Crimea. 
But having, you know, this is true of so many imperial wars, isn't it? I mean, having mobilized society against the Russians, there was a tremendous wave of Russophobia as a result of Russia's bullying of Turkey. The Russian destruction of the Turkish fleet at Sinope, which is in the south of the Black Sea in 1853, had been called a massacre in the British press. Although, you know, you could say the Russians were perfectly justified in destroying an enemy fleet. I mean, Turkey had declared war on Russia first in 1853, and their fleet was supplying Muslims of the Caucasus with, with armaments, as the Russians suspected. And indeed, when they destroyed the fleet, they dis discovered that was right. But the destruction of the Turkish fleet was sort of taken as a moral cause by the British, who, whose, whose press was, was baying for war against Russia. Palmerston was leading a war party to punish Russia for its aggression. And, and so once they had sort of gone through the whole rigmarole of sending troops from Britain and France to Varna, as they were then, which is on the Black Sea coast of today's Bulgaria, where they, these troops were sort of basically festering among cholera and typhus and bad supplies and itching either to go home or see some action. The, the viewpoint of most of the Allied commanders was, well, we've taken them this far, let's now finish the job. Yeah, and look, it, it's, a, it's a good point to take a break. Join us after the break when we find out these troops that are amassed facing each other, itching to do something, what happens next? Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance, run your way. Welcome back. So uh, our guest, Orlando Fijus, was just um, I'm holding a spellbound about the rumblings and machinations that led to what he's now calling the first Crimean War, because there are so many um, parallels that can be drawn to what's going on in Russia today. And you were, I mean, what you were painting was a picture that again seems very, very resonant now, where Russia really doesn't think that the rest of Europe is going to mind <laughs> very much that they're not going to do anything very much. You know, they've, they've, they've struck a blow in Constantinople. They're defending Christianity. Come on, we're the good guys. And suddenly 
the Western powers, the Allies, Britain and France in particular, we were just talking about their troop movements before we went to the break, are saying no. Yeah. We actually don't, we don't, we're not on your side. Even the Austrians who owe them are saying, no, we're not on your side either. So there's suddenly a range of Western European powers facing off against Russia. And Russia is saying, this is just our right. I don't understand why you're meddling. This is our affair. Now, you were saying that the Turks were not as weak as everyone suspected. It's also true to say the Russians weren't as strong as everybody suspected either. I mean, they had the numbers. I mean, we're talking about, I mean, I believe Nicholas I had an army of what, between 800,000 and 900,000 men, but they weren't disciplined. They had to walk everywhere. I mean, I found that fascinating reading that in your book because there was no sort of development of, of sea travel and, 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 and ship capability. So tell me more about this army now, because we've got two sets of troops who are now, you know, getting into position to have this conflict. Yeah. What shape is the Russian army in? There are so many parallels what you said to, uh, with today, aren't there, Anita? Because, yeah, Nicholas underestimated the, the resolve of Western powers to defend the Turks against the Russians. And that was largely based on, on Nicholas's assumption, I think it was, more than anything, that the British and the Russians as the two major powers in Europe would agree among themselves how to divide up the Ottoman Empire, which Nicholas believed was collapsing, in order to avoid a sort of fight for all and a general European war over the spoils of the Ottoman Empire. And in 1844, he'd come to London unexpectedly, met Queen Victoria, met Lord Aberdeen, and thought he had something of a gentleman's agreement on that basis. A man they could do business with. Sorry, I just keep, I keep sort of resonating with things that people have said in modern politics. This is a man we can do business with. It was all very cordial. Well, it yeah. was. I mean, he was already showing signs of the rashness that he probably inherited as part of a mental illness from his father. And Queen Victoria noticed that. But he got the wrong signals. He thought that basically London would back him and that they also were interested in an orderly dismantling of the Ottoman Empire. When he came to London, when he, when he had that strange sort of visit to Queen Victoria and, and, and the meeting in Chiswick House, a, a mile from where I'm speaking, he, he understood that the British had basically given him a, a green light to go ahead with the dismantling or a joint dismantling of the Ottoman Empire. And the British just didn't get that. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure, I'm not sure if it was a green light he expected, but he thought that if he used a bit of force majeure, the British would somehow accommodate him. And it wasn't an unreasonable assumption because there was a, a very strong peace movement in Britain. There was also um, a prime minister in Lord Aberdeen who was essentially Russophile and wanted to do everything to avoid war. So that when, even when the Russians destroyed the Turkish fleet at Sinope in 1853, Aberdeen advised Queen Victoria that this shouldn't be taken as a cause for war. And Queen Victoria herself was fairly hostile to the Turks. I mean, it, it was really something to stick in the throat of, of many British politicians, especially high Anglicans like like Aberdeen and Gladstone, the idea of defending a Muslim power against a Christian state like Russia. Mm. That, was, that was hard for them to swallow. Gladstone had quite a lot of interest also in the Eastern Christians, didn't he? He spoke out against the Bulgarian atrocities and so on, the, these various massacres. Yeah. Well, indeed, much later. much. I mean, the, 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 under the influence of people like Stratford Canning and Urquhart, the British had taken the view that the Turks 
could and should be supported because they were being westernized that uh, Rashid Pasha, the uh, prime minister in Constantinople, who sort of dressed in the European manner, had been to foreign schools, had, had visited London and drawn up a series of reforms, the Tanzimat reforms, as we called them in, I think, Bryanston Square, where Stratford Canning lived. And this was the, the idea that the problem of the Ottoman Empire's treatment of its Christian minorities would be resolved by reform. But of course, that was always slower than the Western powers wanted. I mean, there was a certain amount of idealization of the Turks among Turkophiles like Urquhart in Britain. And there was a certain amount of wishful thinking that the Turks could be somehow civilized, which would, of course, then open the doors to British free trade. Turkey was the most important export market for British manufacturers. Really? Absolutely. Interesting. And, and an important geographical point for the, for the land route to India, as you know, Willie. So that was one of the reasons why the British Turkophiles were so insistent on dragging Britain into a war in the defense of the Turks because they, they thought that if they didn't go in, then, you know, they, they, their initiative to, to westernize and reform the Turkish system would lose strength and the Russians would go in instead. One of the things I found most interesting in your book was that you point out that actually the British contribution to the Crimean War was far smaller than many of the other armies that were sent in. And that the French, I didn't know this, that the French army that went to Crimea was far, far larger than ours. What are the French doing at this point? Well, the French are essentially at this point tagging along behind the British. It's the British who are leading the campaign to turn the crisis of 1853 into a war to punish Russia. Um, above all, Palmerston, backed by The Times and other newspapers like The Morning Chronicle, who were um, effectively casting Russia as a sort of savage Asiatic nation threatening the liberties of Europe because they had suppressed the 1848 revolutions. They, the British had made a hero out of Kossuth, the Hungarian rebel who uh, came to, to, to London greeted as a hero. And the Polish cause, above all, was taken up by the French and the British as as a sort of cause to to defend Western civilization and liberties against the 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 Russian menace, as they called it. Uh, the French were interested in well, Louis Napoleon, the new emperor. Uh, of 1852, needed support, and he was looking to the church. He was the Napoleon's what? Nephew. Nephew. So as nephew, his foreign policy was effectively to assert France again as a great power, and a quick victorious war against uh, the Russia in the Crimea would suit that. But also, he didn't. I think the French were, were suspicious of letting the British have it their own way in the Ottoman Empire and the Near East more generally. They had their own interests in Egypt in particular. So they went along with the British and agreed eventually to sending this allied fleet, which landed on the, the western shores of Crimea, north of Sevastopol. This is actually an invasion of the Crimea by by French and British forces. Indeed. Yeah. And indeed, King Lake, the first great historian of the Crimean War, called it the invasion of Russia. So you could really describe the Crimean expedition as a, a European war led by the British and the French, later joined by the Italians for their own reasons, and indeed, to some extent, supported by the Austrians against Russia, to mm -hmm. punish Russia for its bullying of the Ottoman Empire. Orlando, paint a picture for us of, of the, what's actually happening on the ground. So that steamships, 
steamships are leaving. What are they? What are they steamships? No, they're, they're not yet steamships. They there are a few steamships, but that first Allied landing was essentially uh, large frigates uh, with sails, and they're sailing from Bulgaria. This large invasion fleet from Varna in Bulgaria across the Black Sea, landing on the Crimean pen- Peninsula. What date? We're talking about April 1854. It's a little bit badly planned and executed because you know they don't have maps of the Crimea. They're dependent on. It seems to be a great feature of British invasions of does. places at this point. They they have everything except the maps. Yeah, they had no idea what Crimea was like. They had read various travelogues of the Crimea, which this is exactly what happens in Afghanistan. Yeah, in, yeah, yeah. In, 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 in 1839, they have a they have a sketchbook by some guy. Yeah, it's the yeah. same. They thought Crimea was some sort of tr- tropical paradise, and that they wouldn't need any winter gear. So, of course, um, that becomes their major problem. Generals January and February 1855 would decimate the British forces. In a way, coming back to your original question, Anita, that it didn't decimate the French. The French were better supplied. The French were a a more professional army. They had more uh, military experience in the recent past. They'd fought a war of conquest in Algeria. And they had in, particularly in the Zouaves, which were these sort of uh, daredevil infantry, they had a sort of shock troop force that proved extremely good in the Crimea, particularly in the Battle of the Alma Heights, which took place in the days after the Allied landing on the Allies' route towards Sevastopol, which was their ultimate objective. And in the Battle of Inkerman, the heights above Sevastopol, where the Zouaves fought brilliantly in fog to um, overcome the Russians. So mm. the, the, the French were better um, trained, had better experience, of so a bigger army, and they were also much better equipped and better provisioned. I mean, that was also one of the great lessons of the Crimean War. Don't send a large army to do battle without providing soup kitchens and the rest of it. I, I'd really love to know about the Russian troops in all of this, because they seem to be even worse equipped, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, I mean, I, I sort of said that they were walking everywhere. That's because they never really concentrated on, on a fleet uh, before this. The man in charge, is it is it Prince Menshikov at this time? Is the commander-in-chief of the forces? Uh, it is. Oh, tell us about him, because is it true that he has no downstairs? I mean, is that a true story? Can you tell us about that? <laughs> that he was emasculated. <laughs> he was, well, you were emasculated. I was trying to be a bit more delicate. Oh, no, no, but isn't that the story, that there was a shell that went off and... Removed his manhood. <laughs> there are all sorts oh, God, of Tell us, Orlando. We, we love Scarlet's gossip. Go on, Orlando. I can't Come give on. you the answer to that. It was probably, uh, as like most of these rumours, an exaggeration. Okay, but we should tell people what we're talking about. He There's... sang in a high falsetto. We, <laughs> we are sniggering at the back of the class without telling you, but yeah, I mean, there was a rumour that there was a rumour that a Turkish cannon shell emasculated him. Yeah. You asked me about the Russian army. Yeah. The Russian <laughs> army. <laughs> you asked me about the Russian army. I, I shall answer this question. Go on. The Russian army was a surf army, and this is the most important point to be made. Because the serf army uh, of the Russian Empire was badly equipped. It was effectively dependent on the soldiers making much of their own equipment. So the soldiers were encouraged to form themselves into collectives, they called them artels, and to bring their village trades into the garrisons to make their own uniforms, belts, boots, and all the rest of it. 
And the the Ministry uh, of War depended on this because it lacked the finance to provide them with the proper equipment. It had muskets, but their range was only, they could only really shoot up to 300 metres, whereas the French and then later the British were equipped with the, these fantastic Minier rifles, which could hit accurately at a range of about 1,000 metres. So they were much behind in rifle power. But what the Russians were quite good at was engineering and artillery and in uh, siege warfare, which made the defence of Sevastopol um, so enduring for, on the Russian side. Orlando, everything I've ever learned at school about the Crimean War, and indeed all the kind of movies about the charge of the Light Brigade and everything, the British commanders are always made to be complete idiots. Lord Raglan is a kind of someone's never been to war and just has big moustaches. Yeah. Uh, is that a is that a fair picture, or uh, it sounds a familiar picture? <laughs> I think it's more or less fair, yeah. I mean, it was essentially the army of Wellington. I mean, nothing could really have been done to modernise the army or professionalise it, and it was still very much a class army. I mean, there was probably more similarity between the British and the Russian army than there was between the British and the French army. I mean, many soldiers noticed that. I mean, particularly on the French side, they would go over to the British camp and say, this is like the old days of serfdom, because the... <laughs> right. the, the the, the, the Raglan would have a tent with servants and, you know, sort of the newspaper nicely ironed for him to read. Very important in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> and nice breeches cleaned and, and ready for him. Whereas the, the French officers basically slept in the same bivouacs as their soldiers. It was it was still the army of Napoleon and the French Revolution. And we should say that on, among the counts in the Russian army is the young Count Tolstoy. Indeed. Tolstoy had led a life of profligacy, gambling, womanizing, and then had gone into the army and landed in Bucharest at this first stage of the war when the Russians were marching on Constantinople and was under um, uh, General Gorchakov. And then later transferred to the Crimea itself, where he was to write... Um, a sort of feuilleton, a sort of um, monthly update on the war published in periodicals in Russia, which was later published as sketches from Sevastopol. And it, in some ways, although... It's they were originally sort of journalistic pieces, were they? I mean, like like early Hemingway or something. It was, yeah, that's a good comparison. It was sort of reportage, which was, in Russia, the closest the Russians could get to Verité, because all newspapers were censored. There was only one newspaper in the whole battle zone published in Odessa, and all it did was essentially publish the communiques of the general staff. Of course, it was very different in the West, particularly in England, where the Times and uh, William Russell, their, their famous reporter, completely blew the, the lid on the incompetence of the command. William Howard Russell, the world's first war reporter, very important figure, went on then to the Indian Mutiny, 1857. Indeed. And that, along with uh, photographic uh, reporting from the front, was, was to have a transformative effect. So the troops have landed. Just talk us through the movements and how this war develops, Orlando. So the Allied expedition lands at a little place called Ifpatoria, which had no Russian defences in April 1854. It takes them a good deal of time to disembark and they find they don't have really enough supplies to go much further. They don't have any water. Men begin to drop like flies in the, in the heat. But eventually, after a few skirmishes with the Cossacks, they engage the Russians in the first major battle of the Crimean War. The Battle of Alma. 
the Battle of the Armour Heights, which stood between Yevpatoria and Sevastopol, Russia's great naval base, which the Allied forces had set out to destroy. And the Russians had occupied the heights and found themselves confronted by the Allied forces, who essentially got the better of them, thanks mainly to the Minier rifle, which could fire further than the Russian muskets and to the bravery of the French Zouave forces who clambered up the rocks of the Alba Heights and forced the Russians to effectively flee in panic. At that point, the British, if they had uh, pursued the correct strategy, could have captured Sevastopol immediately because it was undefended. The Russians had not expected the Allies to land on the Crimea, let alone at such a point, and they uh, had not uh, fortified the Sevastopol at all. Could they have just bombarded it? I mean, if they'd sent enough warships in, I mean, that's what they were doing in North Africa at the same time, for example. You have all those... Yeah. Even simpler than that, Willie, they could simply have sent in a few squadrons of, of soldiers and taken taken Sevastopol with, with few losses. Amazing. But they believed mistakenly, partly because of bad intelligence from their Tata spies, that the city was heavily fortified and so decided to circumvent the whole of Sevastopol and attack it from the south through siege warfare, which is what they did. Just before we get to the to Sebastopol or Sevastopol, uh, just just give us a picture. I'm very intrigued by these Zouaves. Then, are they French North African, or are they fighting? In, yeah, they they're a motley force, but mainly they are French North African Tunisians. Some French, you know. I mean, it's a, a Mediterranean force we might call it, uh, which have been forged in the Algerian War of 1831. So it was battle hardened Berbers, Arabs. Exactly. It was motley force, but they were they were real fighters. I mean, they were they were probably the best ground troops of their day. And and mm. the, there's a great moment with the grenadiers and the Coldstream Guards forming a line two thousand strong and firing fourteen volleys up the hill, which is apparently the equivalent of a dozen machine guns. It's all good, sort of uh, straightforward military stuff. This, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Battle of the Alma Heights is not complicated. I mean, essentially, the Russians were easily overcome and, and fled. The real part of the war is, is, is the siege of Sevastopol. And I suppose the attempts by the Russians to break the siege by cutting the supply lines, particularly at Balaclava, which was to result in the catastrophic charge of the Light Brigade. Hold off on the charge of the Light Brigade, because that's we're, we're going to carry on in the next episode. But while all this is going on, and you, you were talking about the sort of Russophobia that has been whipped up, even in the run-up to this, is now at critical mass everywhere because, you know, these are armies that are engaged. And um, what's interesting is that the whole of the British public are now behind this. There's fundraising, there's, you know, sort of concerts, there's jingoism. I don't know whether you know this, William, but, you know, um, Dilip Singh, uh, Maharaja Dilip Singh, his little miniature, that Winterhalter painting, is put on sale to raise money for the troops in I Crimea. I didn't know that. Absolutely really? right. Absolutely, which is which is ironic because eventually he's going to try and get the Tsar to help him get the Brits out of India. Absolutely. But this is like a, a wholesale effort to repel, repel, repel the Russians. And I'm, I'm very interested in what happens again at the end of this Battle of the Armheights. You've got the Russian Lieutenant General Kiryakov, who's meant to be one of the most incompetent, drunken of Indeed. all Russian generals. And he, he leaves in disorder. And then the Brits even capture Meshnikov's own carriage, which includes a field kitchen, letters from the Tsars, 50,000 francs, and most importantly, pornographic French novels. 
Do you find that most important, or the fact there's ladies' underwear in there as well? They are to men. I was going to leave that for you. <laughs> well, no, I it's a subject to... in itself. Uh, there were quite a lot of camp followers on oh, both right. sides, yeah, okay. as well as war tourists, of course. But I'm sure Menshikov was well provided. Okay, it sort of answers my last question about Menshikov. But they're good. Good to know the one that you <laughs> may not have been true after all. Turns out. No, I agree. That goes very. Yeah, as we see. know, war, war yeah. um, produces a yeah. lot of rumor, myth, Can and. I just say that's why I'm a journalist because I see these things. <laughs> you, I see through you these spotted, things. You spotted <laughs> the line here. Very good. She doesn't present PM for nothing. No. Uh, let's very briefly talk about the siege of Sevastopol without, you know, how bad does it get? Who is locked in? Who is surrounding? Just, just give us, paint us a picture of that siege. Well, I mean, it's 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 an it's an eleven month siege. The French under fire took the lead in building trenches in a zigzag formation. Is this the first great trench warfare? Have we seen trench warfare well, there's before? There's been siege warfare, but I think this is the first really major example of trench warfare such as we are to see in the First World War. Barbed yeah. wire? Do you, have you got that sort of thing yet? Not barbed wire, but but gabions, which were right. like baskets filled with mud as defences and three-foot three trenches, which, which the soldiers lived in before they could retreat for rest. So in some ways, this is the this is the first modern modern war with, with absolutely, yeah. and it, it's all about who can supply the trenches with the necessary artillery because it's a war of attrition in which you know they're firing thousands of rounds every day, just like today, just mm. just like today, and yeah, it's missiles being launched from one side against the other day in, day out, to try and wear down the enemy. And here, coming back to Anita's point about the, the Russian serf army, I mean, this is where eventually the Russians were to lose because, as you say, Anita, they had to walk or go by horse and carriage into the Crimea because they didn't have railways and because the uh, shipping to the Crimea was blockaded by the Allies. Whereas the Allies could bring in lots of materials, so shells and cannon and all the rest of it, from Britain and France by steamship, which was brought into operation. And from 1855, the British even built a little railway, uh, about 10 kilometers long from Balaclava, where their supplies came in, to, to, the, to the siege positions in front of Sevastopol. And yet the, the Russians do manage to hold Sevastopol at this they point. They do, they do. I mean, Sevastopol is a special town, I must say. I mean, it is it is a military town and it has a sort of unity, which I don't want to romanticise it, but Tolstoy's slightly romantic picture of Sevastopol as a very unified Russian town fighting for its survival is probably not incredibly far removed from, from reality. There was a sort of spirit to the place, which does come across in, in all of the memoir literature of the defence of Sevastopol that I read. This is such a familiar picture now. It's so odd because we, we're now in a period where we've got trenches, uh, we've, got, uh, we've got modern rifles, we've got a war reporter, uh, we've got um, long-range artillery going backwards and forwards. This is a very familiar world. This is the birth of a new type of warfare. Indeed. And on the Russian side, their big advantage was that they had in Totleben, who was a brilliant military engineer, they had a series of fortifications, Redan's forts, um, which would be extremely hard for the Allies to, to take. I mean, they tried once with an assault 
on June 18th, the anniversary of the Battle of Waterloo, which was hoped would reunify the British and the French, to take uh, the Marach of uh, Redan. And, and they failed because they would, uh, to take it, uh, the advanced troops, the Zouaves, would have had to climb with ladders up fortifications and then fight by hand against the Russian forces. So as we end this first half of our two-part episode on the Crimean War with Orlando Figes, we are in a very familiar situation of the Russians hunkered down behind very effective defences uh, and waiting for the Western assault. Join us next time when we tell you what happens next. Till then, it's goodbye from me, Anita Arnon. And from me, William. Rimple.